Heavenly Father, grant that words spoken today may enter our hearts and bear fruit to your honor. Amen. The Old Testament reading today comes from Psalm 72, verses 15 through 19. You can follow along in your pew Bible, if you wish, on page 523. Long may he live, may gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually and blessings invoked for him all the day. May there be abundance of grain in the land, on the tops of the mountains may it wave. May its fruit be like Lebanon and may men blossom forth from the cities like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever, his fame continue as long as the sun. May men bless themselves by him, all nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May his glory fill the whole earth. Amen and amen. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our New Testament lesson comes from the book of Matthew, the first gospel, chapter 2, the first 12 verses. Listen to the word of God. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is he? Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you may find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his, Mary, his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of frankincense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. This is the word of the Lord. Across the pond in the British Isles, our friends celebrate Christmas on December 25th. And then not quite being content, they have another day on December 26th that they call Boxing Day. I always thought that was rather clever. You had a day for the religious holiday and for family feasting, 
And from my studies in England, every restaurant and every pub has a huge sign luring you in for Christmas dinner. Maybe nobody eats at home anymore in the British Isles. And then you have a day, December 26, for the boxes, for the giving and receiving of gifts. It looks like Boxing Day originated in the 1830s, a little before the Victorian era, and it was a day in which you gave a Christmas box to the newspaper boy or the milkman or someone who served you or helped you. Boxing Day. Whatever, we continue on Christmas, Christmas Eve, December 26, to practice this gift-giving ritual. We give and receive gifts. I'm guessing most of you gave or received a gift sometime in the Advent or Christmas season. Where did it all come from? Where do you suppose the gift-giving practice started? Did it start with Boxing Day in the 1830s in pre-Victorian England? Or does it go all the way back to St. Nicholas, Santa Claus, Kris Kringle, who was an actual person in the 4th century? Or does it go all the way back to the time of Jesus and the gifts of the Magi, gold, frankincense, and myrrh? I've always loved this story in Matthew's Gospel about the Christmas and Advent season. I guess if you're a liturgical calendar person, you would celebrate it next Sunday. And I reached out to your preacher for next Sunday, Charlie Summers, and I said, are you going to preach that? And he said, no, I'm preaching something else. So I grabbed the text because I love it. And uh, it's a privilege to think about what was going on with the Magi and the gifts and the star. So three questions I want to pose as we think about this Bible passage in this event in history. Who are the Magi? Where did they come from? What's their significance? What was the star? How did that come to be? How did that guide the wise men? And what were the gifts? Why are they important? If we were really going to do justice to the entire text, we would ask a fourth question. How in the world does Herod get into this otherwise lovely story of grace and light. But we don't have enough time, so next year maybe I'll come back and talk about Herod. But today we want to talk about who are the Magi, what are the gifts, why this star. Now I'm going to do it in reverse order. I'm actually going to start with the star and talk about the gifts because there are clues that we gain from answering those two questions that help us identify who are the Magi and what were they up to. So let's start with the star. Some kind of astronomical phenomenon is what most historians think. Maybe a comet, maybe a supernova, or maybe a planetary conjunction. Now, I'm not a scientist or an astronomer, so this is all <clears throat> second and third hand. But Johannes Kepler, one of the famous early astronomers in the 17th century, was the first one to guess that the star of Bethlehem was actually a planetary conjunction. Kepler saw it in the year 1604, and he did his mathematical computations and determined that that same conjunction of Jupiter, Saturn, and Mars occurred in the year 6 BC. It's about the time we think Jesus was born, between 4 and 6 BC. Every 20 years, Jupiter and Saturn are in conjunction, 
but only once every 805 years does Mars get into the act also. And those three produce a giant cosmic light that might have been the star of Bethlehem. This planetary conjunction, again, according to Kepler, occurs in the constellation of Pisces, associated with the Hebrews, and also was associated with, Saturn was associated with a ruler, and Jupiter with Palestine. So you put it all together, and you can kind of see how ancient astronomers might have said, hmm, that star is a portent of a ruler about to be born among the Hebrews in Palestine. And perhaps the varying intensity of the star and the conjunction waxing and waning accounts for they followed the star. I can't quite understand how the star hovered over the house, but there needs to be a little mystery for us to ponder that cannot be explained. So there's a cosmic light that gets the attention of these wise men or magi and somehow leads them to Palestine seeking a ruler to be honored. What about the gifts? According to Matthew, they brought gold, frankincense, and myrrh, three gifts. That's why we think there were three magi. You, you realize we have no idea how many magi there were. There's no number given in scripture. I would say, I usually say two or more, because <laughs> it'd be hard to carry three gifts. But there are theories of, there's a two wise men theory, and there's a ten wise men theory, and so on. But we know that there are three expensive gifts, and if you have a child, a toddler, you'd have to say, what good is gold, frankincense, and myrrh for a baby boy? Well, obviously, they're gifts of tribute. If they're seeking a king, they're bringing gifts that are fit for royalty. Does each one have particular significance? Probably not. But the hymn writer is kind of wonderful in saying gold for a king, frankincense for deity, and myrrh for a stone-cold tomb. And the church fathers theorized that each gift had some kind of significance. In fact, uh, Bernard of Clairvaux said the gold was to relieve the virgin's poverty and the frankincense was to take care of the the malodorous aroma in the stable, and the myrrh was to chase away the vermin and the worms. Kind of a practical uh, application of three very expensive gifts. I like the one that gold is fit for a king, and frankincense reminds us that the babe of Bethlehem is the son of God, and that myrrh, used in anointing bodies at the time of death, presages Jesus' sacrifice as suffering servant. I learned uh, recently that frankincense comes from three places on earth. I, I, I know this will seem like trivia, but it, since I just learned this, I have to share it. So I visited Oman, United Arab Emirates, and Bahrain in September. Those are three countries on the Arabian Peninsula. Arabian Peninsula is dominated by Saudi Arabia, and you may know at the southern tip, there's the country of Yemen that's in civil war. And right next to Yemen is Oman. Well, the three countries where frankincense is still produced, it's a rosin that is exuded from a tree. And you put a cut in a tree and it bleeds rosin. You scrape the rosin off and dry it. Same with myrrh. So Oman, Yemen, and Somalia 
are the three countries that produce frankincense. We were in Oman, and I kept seeing signs advertising you could buy frankincense, and it um, obviously reminded me of this story. So, an amazing star, expensive royal gifts. Who were the magi that brought them and followed the star? Probably, they were learned scholars from Persia or Babylon. They were probably a combination of astrologers and astronomers. Now, we tend to poo-poo astrology as the work of fortune tellers and horoscopes, but in the ancient world, the gap between astrology, predictions, and astronomy, a science of following the heavenly bodies, was not that far apart. If you know your medieval history, you know of something called alchemy. And alchemists were proto-scientists that were trying to figure out, is there a recipe for gold? And the alchemists turned into the chemists and physicists of the modern world. So probably these magi were those kind of people. They watched the heavens. They charted the pattern of the stars. Astro, star, nomos, law, the law of the stars. And they wondered what the stars meant. Astra, star, logos, word, or message. What's the pattern of the stars? What's the message of the stars? And somehow, this particular star grabbed a hold of them and brought them to Palestine. Now, the, I think the best guess is that they're from Persia. Persia had astronomers. Babylon had astronomers. The reason some people tilt toward Babylon is the reference to gold and frankincense that came from Arabia. But the reason people tilt toward Persia is because all ancient Christian art pictures a magi in Persian dress with the Phrygian caps, you know, those cylindrical caps. There's a great story, true story. In the year 614, the Sassanid uh, empire of the Persians rolled into Palestine and captured Bethlehem. And they were destroying buildings right and left, but they came to the Basilica of Bethlehem and they spared it because on the wall was a mosaic of the three wise men, or magi, dressed in Persian garb. True story. So I tend to think they were Persians, um, seeking after the star, trying to find out about this ruler born in Palestine. So what do we make of uh, all this? Are there any conclusions we can draw for us today? It's an old, old story, but what might we take away and hide in our hearts today? I'm going to offer three conclusions. Here's the first one. The power and importance of revelation. Just think, how were these magi sent or guided? They saw a cosmic star that was hung in the heavens by, as Christian people we would say, our, the creator put the star in the sky. The, the creator, God, made the star out of a planetary conjunction and led the wise men to notice it. And then at the very end of the story, you remember they were supposed to go back and see Herod? And what's the text say? But being warned in a dream, they avoided Herod and departed to their home another way. Who sent the dream? But again, the hand of God. It's quiet, isn't it? God hangs the star, 
God speaks through dreams and visions. And if you turn over to the other nativity story that we love so much at this time of year, Luke chapters 1 and 2, you see Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist. You see mother, the Mary of Jesus. You see Joseph, the earthly father of Jesus, all addressed, guided by angels. And the shepherds in the field, angels come and tell them the good news. Do you see revelation in this story? God revealing himself, filling in the details so people understand what's going on. So a theologian that uh, I like that was once part of this church, John Leith, who used to make a distinction between puzzles and mysteries. I don't know if you, it's one of those things that stuck with me. It's in his book, The Reformed Imperative. He says a puzzle is something you can solve. You know, a jigsaw puzzle, you can put all the pieces together. A crossword puzzle, you can figure out the clues that give rise to the words. But a mystery, you can't figure it out. Somebody has to tell you the answer to the mystery or the secret. The Greek word mysterion actually means secret. Something you do not know unless someone reveals it. The wise men, they saw the star, they knew it was important, they figured out the puzzle that it pointed to Palestine and a ruler, but where to go in Palestine? So they stopped in Jerusalem, the capital, and asked the scholars there, do you know anything about this? Do you have any ancient documents that tell where the child is to be born? And they are the ones that point the wise men to Bethlehem. They needed revelation. They needed information from beyond them to find the significance of the star, the birth of the baby Jesus. So, revelation, dreams, messengers, angels, visions. Today, we kind of have it easy, right? We have, we have a book, the Bible. We call it special revelation. God revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ. God reveals himself in the creation. But God reveals himself in scripture, in the Old and New Testament, 66 books that speak of Jesus' future coming in the story of Israel and then speak of the significance of Jesus' coming in the New Testament, the story of Jesus and the kingdom of God. So remember, God has spoken, and we have quite a bit of what he said conveniently assembled in a book that we can consult and read. So the power of revelation speaks to me from this story. Here's, here's a second one. This good news that the angels tell the shepherds and that the wise men seek following a star, it's for, it's for everybody. It's for all people. So the shepherds represent peasant Jewish folk, lowly people out on the hillside. The wise men or magi represent elite, educated, Gentile folk. Gentiles attending to the baby Jesus? Yes, that's part of the importance of the Magi, that even the Gentiles are going to be included in this amazing work of God called the kingdom of God. You'll permit me a tiny word about God's mission in the world today. That's my calling. I think about the world's peoples that have not yet heard the gospel. Frontier Fellowship, the ministry I lead is about connecting churches like yours with what God is doing on the frontier, 
where people are just beginning to hear the good news, including Iran, modern-day Persia. So this little message about Magi reminds us that the Gentiles were in God's thinking right from the beginning. And then here's the third thing. Uh, Again, I can't help but make the connection between Persia and Iran. Because one of a series of projects that we are involved in is supporting the church in Iran. Now, I don't know if you know the history of ancient Persia, but it was one of the great empires. You had Rome, you had Persia, you had the Mongol Empire coming to an end, you had China, you had India. Those were the big areas of the world in the ancient world and the medieval world. And we don't know a lot about Persia because it's part of the Eastern world, but it was an important empire. Christians were persecuted in the Roman Empire and they would sometimes go east across the border into Persia where there was not much persecution at first. And so you actually have Christian churches in Persia as early as, I don't know, the 100s and 200s. I was just doing a little reading about this. There was an archaeology dig in the 1920s, a British team dug out a Roman fort in eastern Persia, which would have been near the Roman Empire boundary, and they found underneath the fort a perfectly preserved Persian church dating to the year 230. That It is said to be the oldest complete church structure ever excavated. So there are Christians in the Persian Empire as early as the late 100s and early 200s. A lot of things happen, including a Muslim invasion later, uh, and the church goes away. We had Presbyterian and missionaries in Persia up until 1979 when the Shah fell and the missionaries were kicked out. But we have determined today, through our partners, that Iran has perhaps the fastest growing church in the world. I'm just going to say that again because it's a little jarring. Iran has what is possibly the fastest growing church in the world today. Official figures would say a half a million. Our Iranian friends in London say two to four million, perhaps, Christian believers in Iran. So from tiny beginnings, a star, magi, early church, persecution, today God is doing a work in Iran that's turning the world upside down. I'll tell you two stories and conclude. This is a story I heard a few years ago. Western missionaries had been kicked out, but a missionary couple was back in Iran for a visit, and they had some Farsi Bibles, and they were driving and looking for places to visit and people to give a Bible to. And they stopped at what we would call a gas station, a a Sheetz or a Wawa gas plus general store, and the man pumped his petrol, his gas, and as he was finishing up, his wife rolled down her car window and said, you see that man standing over against that building, the store? He said, yeah, the one with the AK-47 in his arm? She said, yeah, that man, I think we're supposed to give him a Bible. And he kind of gulped, because in that part of the world, a woman could not speak to a man, a man couldn't speak to a woman, the, the husband would have to give the Bible. He said, I'm not going near anyone who's carrying an AK-47. 
I think we're supposed to give him a Bible. Forget it. And he jumps in the car, and they race out, and they're going down the road, and they've gone for a couple of minutes, and then she said, pull over right now. What's wrong? Someday, we're going to appear in heaven, and the first question they're going to ask us is, when I told you to give a Bible to that man, why did you ignore me? And he sighs heavily, whips the car around, goes back, gets a Farsi Bible from the trunk of the car, tentatively walks over and hands it to the man with the AK-47 cradled in his arm. The man puts down the weapon and he takes the book and he kisses it and he says, the word of life. He said, I had a dream three days ago and in the dream I was told to come to this place and wait at this spot and somebody would bring me the word of life. That man became a Christian and a leader of the underground church and then was martyred five years later. Revelation, the gospels for all people, God is still working out his purpose in the Persian world. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for your word, which we believe is truth. We thank you how it is both ancient and fresh how it speaks to us even today, how it tells of mighty works and mighty deeds. Lord, we marvel that you are still speaking through dreams and visions, but why do we marvel? You did it all through the days of Scripture. We thank you, Lord, for your word. For your word that leads us to Jesus, we thank you for Magi that followed a wordless star but consulted with experts in Jerusalem and who were warned in a dream. Lord, encourage us. Encourage us to receive your revelation, to read it, to share it, to pass it on. For we pray in the name of Jesus the Christ. Amen.